Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your host, Doug Sweeney. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney. Last week, we began a special series of 10 podcast episodes for the summer that highlight just a few of the greatest hits from our archives. Let me remind you that as you listen to these episodes, we encourage you to go to BeesonDivinity.com store, where you can browse our online archive and purchase digital downloads from classes and lecture series here at Beeson. Today, we're delighted to present a sermon by the late Dr. Calvin Miller from a 2002 preaching series on the Apostles' Creed. In this sermon, Dr. Miller preaches on the resurrection of Christ. Dr. Miller's quick wit and humor join with touching personal stories in this sermon to emphasize the hope we have because of the resurrection of our Savior. Let's go now to Hodges Chapel and hear from Dr. Calvin Miller. I'm not exactly sure how Frank Thielman would interpret the word anastasis, but at least a loose living Bible translation is. <laughs> He's up and about. I, uh, we, had a, uh, we had a way uh, in Oklahoma of uh, describing people who were on the men, and we often said, he's up and about. If we, we usually said it one of three ways. We said, well, he's, he's up and about, which means he's up, but he's not very much about. Uh, or then sometimes we said, well, he's up and about, uh, which means we wish we hadn't seen him we'd get well card. And finally, he's up and about. And I think that's the Anastasis word. Jesus is indeed standing again. It lies at the heart of all we are. I'm always aware that the Christianity, as Lewis said, is exactly the tale of a great miracle and that we stand in great debt to this miracle because it creates a faith. Traditions are things we create, but miracles are things that make us. And you know, I, uh, a few years ago, a friend of mine wasn't a very good friend. In fact, he was a liberal Baptist friend. Uh, <laughs> gave me a, a jar of brandied fruit and on the side of the fruit it said that this recipe had been alive since 1588. I remember the date because I thought of the Spanish Armada. It's one of the few dates I actually know in history. Uh, and this fruit had been alive since 1588 and that if each week we would take a spoon out and give it to a friend, they could start their own jar of brandy fruit and we could put in some more fruit. The problem is we just don't have that many friends. And so before long, we had jars of fruit all over our house. And finally, and I hate, to, I hate to rack a tradition that's been in force since 1588, but we just had to stop, and we gave up on that whole idea. I'm always aware that traditions are rather like that, that we maintain them until somehow they're in our way, and sometimes we trip over them or, or walk past them. But the resurrection stands, stands right down in the middle as, as a great miracle between great doubt and great belief. It was Matthew Arnold who said, for instance, speaking of Jesus, Lorn hence he lies, far hence he lies in that Lorn Syrian town, and on his grave with shining eyes, the Syrian stars look down. But if I read John Updike, who says it best for me, he said in telephone polls, let's not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence making of this event some parable, a, a sign of, printed in a fading doubt of earlier ages. Let us walk to the door, let the stone roll away, not a stone of paper mache, not a stone of story, but a vast rock of materiality. 
that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for us the wide light of day. And when we come down to that miracle, it seems we have to take our, our stand on one side or the other. The problem is that there are always plenty of people that give us reasons to doubt. For instance, in 1963, when they were excavating the, uh, the uh, temple site in Jerusalem, when they were actually building a, a new YMCA in, uh, <laughs> in Jerusalem, in 1963, they found a skeleton, and they said this skeleton was someone who had been crucified, and it was about 2,000 years old. He had a high brow, they said, obviously a very intelligent skeleton. And uh, what they said was, as they explained this, that, that in essence, uh, they were hinting, of course, the fact that this very possibly could have been Jesus. It didn't really say much to me, except that intelligent people sometimes get crucified. The second, in, in, in 1970, in 1970, they found another skeleton when they were excavating another, they found these skeletons seven years apart. The interesting thing was that the second skeleton had also been crucified, actually still had the nails through his wrist bones somehow, they said. And as I, I meditated upon it, I thought about what Luther says in John Osborne's play. Dr. George, I don't know what Luther said really, but in John Osborne's play, he said, as he was protesting the use of relics in the Catholic Church, he said, uh, Luther in the play says something like, how does it happen of Christ's original 12 apostles, 18 of them are now buried in Germany? Uh, so that in essence, too many skeletons are as bad as having no skeletons at all, if you want to make that sort of point. I examined all of this and I began to ask myself, why, what does it, what does it really mean? Lots of, uh, lots of theories advanced by the doubters. The, the pretense theory that Jesus pretended to be dead. It's so hard to pretend to be dead. The swoon theory that pretended he fainted on the cross and was revived in the cool tomb. The wrong tomb theory which says those first people to visit the tomb went to the wrong tomb. My, one of my favorites is Leslie Weatherheads. I keep this book around just for laughs every spring. But uh, it's called The Matter of the Resurrection. And he suggests that Jesus' mind was so powerful that he just, after he died, his mind stayed alive. And, and he, his mind told the tomb it was a great oven. He heated the oven up and vaporized himself, but his mind continued to exist, so that everywhere he went, he was able, by the power of his great mind, to recrystallize his body. I made a decision. It's just easier to believe Matthew than that. <laughs> now, if, I, if I examined all of that, I, uh, I, I found something that uh, leans a lot of credibility to my doubt on this matter. I cut this out of a paper, and it says, it's an apologetic, Elvis' tomb is empty. Um, as an index to its credibility, it appears in the same magazine with Pig Girl Mother's Wolf in Tibet and Rhea Dosa Woman Sees Jesus in Taco. But, but what, what impressed me about this article was he says uh, that everybody thinks Elvis Presley is buried in his Graceland mansion, but the king's tomb is empty. Possibility number one, Elvis faked his death and is still alive. Are you beginning to hear some of the same kind of logic here? Uh, possibility number two, Elvis is buried or hidden in an unmarked grave. This is the wrong tomb theory. Uh, possibility number three, Elvis was resurrected from the dead and taken directly to heaven. And though it may sound far-fetched, there is compelling evidence, evidence to support this theory. The king died or disappeared in 1977, and thousands of fans have been healed after mentioning his name in prayer, meditating over his photo or coming face-to-face -face with his spirit. Possibility number four, Elvis faked his death and traveled incognito for 12 years before he perished in a plane crash in Bolivia in January of 1988. Uh, this article intrigued me because it sounds like, it's sort of like Josh McDowell. It's written from a very, like he changed sides and then wrote the article. But I, I, when I read something like this, I think, you know, these theories, in essence, 
all, all sort of uh, come out at the same place. There are, there are occasions uh, to doubt and might as well be printed in a tabloid, I suppose. Paul mentions these six appearances. I wonder that he didn't start with the women. Because all the Gospels mention the women are the first to the tomb. I don't know why Paul didn't start there. My suspicion is if you'd said to him, Paul, why didn't you start with the women? He would have said, women? Which women? So he starts out with Peter, or whatever that means. Peter has had some unfinished business with Jesus. And when he and Jesus got back together, I believe the issue of all the things he needed to say to Jesus. And Biden said after that denial period, he's given the first chance to square the world with a good, clean conscience. I love it when Byron says, the thorns that I have planted are of a tree I planted. They have torn me and I bleed. I should have known what sort of fruit would spring from such a seed. Peter had a need to come to Jesus. The twelve are next. He appears to them, perhaps to strengthen the leadership of the church. Then he appears to 500 brethren at once in Paul's list. And by the way, this is the earliest list we have of the resurrection. He appears to 500 brethren at once. Brother, it does me a little service here when he points out the difference between hallucination and apparition. If one person sees a lion in this room, it could be a hallucination. But if 500 people see a lion at one time, then you're in quite another area, says Weatherhead, that there must have been something actually there. James is next, a member of the family. Family members are hard to convince that we've been raised from the dead. They're the last to believe this kind of thing about us. There's a sort of a parable or myth which suggests that, that James, who, remember early in Mark, comes to take Jesus back home because Jesus is apparently embarrassing the family. He brings Jesus back, uh, they want to bring Jesus back home because he doesn't believe. But somehow, somewhere, he comes to faith. And the myth suggests that he's at his carpenter shop, seriously turning over the, the, in his mind the means of everything that happened to his executed brother. When he hears a voice clear his throat in the room behind him, turns around to see Jesus and comes to faith. It is Thomas which most intrigues me though. Paul doesn't mention him, but he's in that second list of appearances there. Thomas, who has stomped his foot on the ground and said, unless I see the nail prints and stick my finger in the nail prints, thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. What did Thomas need? Well, I think he needed a little intellectual repentance. Once you stomp your foot on the ground and get pretty vocal about not believing, it's pretty hard to retract that without some loss of faith. Some years ago, in fact, quite a few years ago now, a man was traveling down, things like this happened all the time in the 80s and 70s, but a man was traveling down Interstate 80 in Omaha, Nebraska. He said he was run off Interstate 80 by a flying saucer. And his car was found in a ditch. They took him to the hospital and he swears he was driven off the road by a flying saucer. His name was Sidney. They were always named Orville or Sidney in those days when they, when they saw these things. <laughs> but I can remember, I can remember that when he made this statement, I, I was reading this in the paper, and I just live a little ways from where this flying saucer ro drove him off the road. I said, Lord, I, I don't understand this. Why don't some of these people who are seeing UFOs take a picture? Why doesn't someone take a picture of these UFOs? I said, you know why they don't? She said, I don't know. I said, because it's hard to photograph schizophrenia. <laughs> the next Sunday afternoon, Barb and I were going to the market, not far from our house. We pulled up to a stop sign, ready to turn onto a major street, and over on the horizon, there were these little cigar-looking shake things. I was relieved when Barbara saw them too, and I said to her, what are those? She said, 
You know what they look like? I said, I know what they look like. What are those? And she said, okay, smart Alec, where's your camera? <laughs> the once you take a strong stand, it requires some intellectual repentance. You have to speak a little more softly. I still don't know what they were, but I know there was something out there. Finally, says Paul, finally, says Paul, he came to me as one born out of due time. There are two wonderful miracles in the Bible. All the miracles are great, but two, two wonderful ones. I think the crossing of the Red Sea upon which I think Judaism literally hangs. There are 51 mentions in the Pentateuch of the little phrase that I, I brought you up. I think that's an interesting thing. Throughout the Pentateuch, 51 times the writer says, I brought you up out of the land of slavery, whatever. 19 times in Exodus, 8 times in Leviticus, 7 in Numbers, and 17 in Deuteronomy. But the litany of the miracle in the New Testament is this Christ whom God raised up. And this phrase is mentioned in the New Testament 35 times, 16 times in Acts, 6 times in Romans, 3 times in 1 Corinthians, and 10 times in the rest of the Pauline epistles. 35 times this Christ whom God raised up. Why would he say it that way? I love the notion that almost every reference in the New Testament to Jesus coming back to life is passive tense, as though Jesus had nothing to do with it. And it seems to me that there is, there, there's, there's an implication here, a wonderful implication, that this is Jesus' great act of faith. You know, I, um, I love it when Dr. George quoted, I think Anselm, I love this idea that the Trinity is within itself a sweet society. And I don't understand it all, but I believe Jesus loved God so much that when he closed his eyes in death, he realized that unless God was faithful in raising him back, death was pretty permanent. It always had been up to this point and would likely be again. And it becomes a great act of trust when Jesus willingly submits his soul into death and closes his eyes in death. Because if I contrast Romans 5 with what happens over in the first part of Genesis, I can only read Adam's last name as Thanatos, Adam who died. And I can only read Jesus' last name as Anastasis, he's up and about. And if I pull those close together, it's a wonderful thing. Ellen McAllister, in meditating on Jesus and his death, and, and, Adam, and Adam and his death and what they meant, she said, as she sat by a window one day, firm wings, she said, I see the gulls this shining afternoon. Glide past my window, glide along, curve and turn and rise, enthralled I watch. No strain, no struggle, firm sinewed wings, no crashes in midair, no suicidal anguish tears apart the rhythm of their wing beats. For such wings, gulls were made, gull bones and feathers too. And then she says, so was the soul of man to be made, to soar in upper regions undismayed, yet it hobbles, hobbles, hobbles over stones, wing broken, feather dragging, a thing of groans. Thanatos. I did a lot of funerals while I was a pastor. Nothing ever quite touched me like the funeral of a little child. I don't know, there's something about a little coffin, a little tiny coffin that is so plaintive. To just see it silences the church when they walked in. This little girl had for her father, uh, a man who was an aide to a U.S. general in the Air Force. And I can remember so clearly that, that service and, and reading that uh, a little sonnet I had written. Her name was Miffy. And I wrote this little sonnet on the second day after her death, read it at her funeral. I, I, I waited here a second day 
I knew your first day there would seem to you a treat. You'd gaze in wonder at the view of all that city gathered in the street. So, uh, so many that I know are, are afraid here to, to cross the sea you swam so easily. What courage made you unafraid to swim eternity? Did God appear a high-rise trinity? Did glass or towering crystal dazzle you? Did he not cry, let this child come to me and give her room to skip this avenue? At those grand gates which closed against the night, he scooped you up and carried you to light. This is the Christ who's standing again. The Christ who's conquered it for us. I just read Leonard Sweet's latest book. It's hard to keep up with Leonard. But his latest book is a book called Carpe Manana. Uh, when, I, when I think about Carpe Manana, I, I like that idea. But Leonard's idea, of course, is that if you can cyber-sight yourself, you can get ready for a new era of church growth. I, I read this, and I, I like Leonard a lot. He gets paid a lot more than any of us here get paid, but I like him nonetheless. But I realize this. I realize that the beautiful thing that Jesus did, Leonard Sweet didn't quite touch. Jesus is the one who carpeed manana. He pulled it right out and secured it for us. And it has nothing to do in his finest sense about church growth. It has to do with the brevity of life. And life is brief. I love the story about the man who went to his doctor, had his diagnosis, and the doctor said to him, uh, I'm sorry to tell you, but you only have a little while left to live. The man said, how long? He said, 10. He said, 10 years, 10 weeks, 10 months. He said, 10, 9, 8, 7. <laughs> Life is short, says James. It is even as a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. I reckon all the time with, with Emily Dickinson. And she said after losing her father, she wrote those little lines. She said, I, I never lost as much but twice. And that was in a sod. Twice have I stood a beggar before the gates of God. I remember as a little boy, my mother hoisting me up over the edge of a little coffin where my brother laid. It's one of my earliest memories, actually, to see my brother lying there dead and trying to reckon with that as a child and the huge absence it created in our home. But I remember, I remember even more than that. I remember a phone call in the middle of the night from my sister who said two words with absolutely no way to dress them up and the words were, Mom's dead. And I can remember getting up in the middle of the night, getting my kids and my wife in our little Volkswagen that was the only car we had. I can remember feeling very disoriented about this huge section being cut out of the center of my life. I can remember starting out in the middle of the night in that little Volkswagen with those tiny little headlights and going down from Nebraska to Oklahoma. There's Kansas, you know. Kansas. I asked myself that night, Lord, why Kansas? It has no, nothing much to do except separate Nebraska from Oklahoma. But I'm on this long, long road and those headlights are being soaked up by that black oil of the black asphalt road. And there's black inside of me and there's black outside of me and it's a pretty dark world. And you know what came to me as I drove along? It wasn't one of those new Baptist hymns. It wasn't one, you know, shake a little hand, shake the hand next to you. What came to me, what came to me that night were, were these words. Come ye disconsolate, where'er ye languish. Come to the mercy seat, fervently kneel. Here bring your heartache, here bring your anguish. Earth has no heartache that heaven cannot heal. You may rest assured, your future is secure.
Anastasis, he's up and about. Carpe manana, he's taking care of that. And you may say with a little girl whose form I once attended, at those grand gates which close against the night, he, the living Christ, will scoop you up and carry you to light. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from the campus of Samford University. Our theme music is by Advent Birmingham. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our engineer is Rob Willis, and our show host is Doug Sweeney. For more episodes and to subscribe, visit BeesonDivinity.com slash podcast. You can also find the Beeson Podcast on iTunes and Spotify.